In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanan succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show kindness to Hanan, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanan concerning his father. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite commanders said to Hanan, their lord, Do you think David is honouring your father by sending envoys to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you only to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanan seized David's envoys, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments at the buttocks and sent them away. When David was told about this, he sent messages to meet the men, for they were greatly humiliated. The king said, Stay at Jericho till your beards have grown, and then come back. When the Ammonites realized that they had become obnoxious to David, they hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers from Beth Rehob and Zobah, as well as the king of Makkah with 1,000 men, and also 12,000 men from Tob. On hearing this, David sent Joab out with the entire army of fighting men. The Ammonites came out and drew up in battle formation at the entrance of their city gate, while the Arameans of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Maka were by themselves in the open country. Joab saw that there were battle lines in front of him and behind him, so he selected some of the best troops in Israel and deployed them against the Arameans. He put the rest of the men under the command of Abishai, his brother, and deployed them against the Ammonites. Joab said, If the Arameans are too strong for me, then you are to come to my rescue. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come to rescue you. Be strong. And let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. Then Job and the troops with him advanced to fight the Arameans, and they fled before him. When the Ammonites realized that the Arameans were fleeing, they fled before Abishai and went inside the city. So Job returned from fighting the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. After the Arameans saw that they had been routed by Israel, they regrouped. Hadadezer had Arameans brought from beyond the Euphrates River. They went to Helam with Jobak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, leading them. When David was told of this, he gathered all Israel, crossed the Jordan, and went to Helam. The Arameans formed their battle lines to meet David and fought against him. But they fled before Israel, and David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He also struck down Shobak, the commander of the army, and he died there. When all the kings who were vassals of Hadadezer saw that they had been routed by Israel, they made peace with the Israelites and became subject to them. So the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites anymore. Thanks, Bridge. Please keep your Bibles open to Samuel 10. I'll lead us briefly in prayer. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that you speak to us in your living and active word. And we pray that you'd move powerfully in us by your spirit, build us up in the faith as we uh, consider together uh, this uh, yeah, fairly intense passage of scripture that you set before us tonight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Just going to check I've got the power. Yep. Well, it was some time in my mid to sort of late primary school where I can remember that for me and my friends, one of the most enthralling topics of conversation was regarding the worst possible way to die. Being boys, of course, there was always this sense of competitive one-upmanship. So the aim was to win kudos by coming up with the most ridiculously over-the-top death scenario that would out-horrible all the other ones. And so after a while, you'd get something like, 
Well, the worst possible way to die would be bungee jumping off a cliff when the cord snaps and you get mashed by the rocks as you go down and you land in a pool of vinegar which is loaded with piranhas who eat your arms and then you get hit by a meteorite and then the ambulance on the way to the hospital crashes into a truck full of horse manure under which you suffocate. Awesome. Now, I would not at all be surprised if... In psychology, there's some label for that developmental phase uh, during which children come to apprehend the reality of being, you know, mortal. And that for boys in particular, that maybe that was part of that process taking place, or we were just crazy, I don't know, uh, ask a psychologist. But if you somehow ignore the childishness, there's actually a bit of sense to uh, the, you know, what I and my silly mates were doing. You see, one of the ways I reckon we're wired is we want to find the absolute limit, especially when it comes to really difficult or unpleasant things that can seriously affect us, so that we can at least know where the bottom line is and therefore hopefully convince ourselves that we'll never hit such a low. See, no matter how bad my death and, and its surrounding circumstances might end up being, I reckon I could always think of something worse and in that way, understandably, I kind of can comfort myself, you see. And I mention that this evening because the Word of God actually affords us that kind of opportunity tonight. For in today's living and active Word of God here in 2 Samuel 10, we actually learn, would you believe, what truly is the absolute worst possible way in which one can face the reality of death. And of course, therefore, how to ensure that, you know, well, that doesn't befall us. Why am I saying that? Because it doesn't seem apparent from the reading you just heard. Well, stay with me. Let's get stuck, it in, uh, stuck into it together and, and see if you see what I mean after a short while. Our passage begins with people questioning the good motives of God's chosen king, David. The scene gets set. It's a very scene-setting opening here from uh, verse 1, which says, and you can read there or on the screen, in the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died. And his son Hanan succeeded him as king. David thought, I'll show kindness to Hanan, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanan concerning his father. Now, if you remember from last week, or if you weren't here last week, King David is the king chosen by God to rule over God's special people, Israel. And David is thoroughly at this point established as king over a united Israel and he subdued their surrounding enemies. So now what does he do now that he's kind of made it? Well, of course, he starts looking about how he can show kindness, the blessing of God to others. And last week, he showed the, the kindness of God to a former enemy, but who still happened to be one of God's people, Israel. You remember the guy's funny name? Someone yell out the funny name, the guy last week? Mephibosheth, that's right. And uh, David showed kindness to Mephibosheth. What's significant here is that now David is seeking to expand that circle of God's blessing. He's, he's expanding the circle beyond Israel and into the nations. There's this other nation, that's what that funny name is there, the Ammonites. And that shouldn't surprise us that David's doing this because we know, and as of 2 Samuel chapter 7, David himself knows that the Davidic kingdom, David's kingdom, was actually now part of the means by which God was fulfilling his promise to Abraham 
that would mean eventually that blessing would come to all the families of the earth. Hence, David is now seeking to show kindness beyond the people of of Israel, beyond the borders of Israel. And he's just got an opportunity. Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, has died. Hanan's his son, so here's some kindness I can show to another nation. Now, it just so happens that Nahash was a real nasty piece of work. Once upon a time, he'd almost subjugated a significant Israelite city. I think it was Jabesh Gilead, and I think it's 1 Samuel 11, but I can't remember. But he, he, he subjugated, almost subjugated this city and threatened to gouge out everybody's right eye. And that's the kind of guy he was. Even though he'd, he'd have enslaved them, that wouldn't be enough. He'd, he'd have to rip out their eyes. But presumably later on, during that time when David was running for his life from Saul and pretended to be a Philistine, presumably somewhere in that period, Nahash showed some kind of kindness or favour to David. And now David, just like God, looks for occasion to show kindness. He looks for mercy. He, he, he tends toward mercy over judgment. That's what he's, his heart inclines to. And uh, he's got the opportunity now, recently, with Hanan's father, Nahash, is now dead, and so he thinks, well, I can show some kindness to the Ammonites by showing that I mourn with Hanan. But sadly, unlike Mephibosheth from last week, who humbly accepted David's kindness, because he really couldn't do anything else, Hanan, this week, is led to reject the kindness of of God's chosen king. And it happens on account of David's good motives being called into question. Continuing from verse 2, when David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite commanders said to Hanan their lord, do you think David is honouring your father by sending envoys to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you only to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanan seized David's envoys shaved off half of each man's beard and cut off their garments at the buttocks and sent them away. Rather obvious to to see how this would have been a considerable humiliation. Uh, And you know what? When I imagine these guys, each with half a beard missing and their clothes cut to expose their bare bums, for whatever reason, I still imagine they have their sandals on and that that somehow makes it worse. I don't know why, but you sort of, yeah. But even sort of more than that, more than that juvenile thought that I've got going on, there's actually an extra dimension to the humiliation that takes place here. You see, obedient Jewish men would have been keen to uphold God's law, given in Leviticus 19, part of which says, do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip the edges of your beard. It comes just a few verses, would you believe, after the command to not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material, which means it would have been hard for these guys to get repair jobs done. A really helpful way to understand this sort of, this kind of law and the thought process behind the many laws like this is with this made-up word. Uh, Here's the made-up word, singularity-ishness. If you were here during our Levitical series, you might remember that I sort of threw this one at you then. What do I mean by that? We see the holy God who would dwell among his chosen people is the same yesterday, today and forever. 
That's God, the true and living God. The most important command that God gave to his people is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He does not share his glory with another. And he is unlike any other thing or person or being. And so, visually and pragmatically, the Israelites would reflect God's character by their, what I call, singularity-ishness. Stuff kind of looks like it's singular and undefiled and and set apart in in all sort of facets of Israelite life. They were not, for example, to plant two kinds of seeds in the one field. There was a law that says you can't do that. They were not to mate two different kinds of animals together. And even, as we saw, their beards and their clothing would have had to sort of look visually uniform, which would have shown they proudly serve Yahweh, the true and living God, who is unlike anything else. They served him with singularity-ishness devotion. And David, of course, therefore would have understood just how offensive what the Ammonites did here would have, would have been to, to any Jewish man. And so verse 5, when David was told about this, he sent messengers to meet the men, for they were gracely humiliated the king said stay at Jericho till your beards have grown back and then come back and I bet they'd have been delighted to receive this command from their king who rightly sympathizes with their predicament see they really would have difficulty fitting in with the people of God when they're so visually not singularity-ishness right and David is kind he spares them that further humiliation now Despite such a blatant spurning of his kindness, there's no indication that David would necessarily have sought retaliation. There's nothing in the text that says David was going to go and get even. Now, he might have, we're not told, and that's actually important, because what we are told is it's actually the Ammonites who take the initiative to escalate the conflict further. It's almost as if they were looking for an excuse to start a fight, to start a big offensive with God's people Israel. So verse 6, when the Ammonites realised that they'd become obnoxious to David, they hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers from Beth, Rehob and Zobah, as well as the king of Maaka with 1,000 men and also 12,000 men from Tob. What are all these weird people and places? Well, to help you out, here's a rough map. There are a bunch of nations to the far north and far northeast, both of where the Ammonite territory is and Israelite territory is. Uh, So it's, to put it, to sort of oversimplify it, it's basically a big gang up to mount a huge offensive against David and the people of God in Israel. It is pretty much a textbook case, if not the textbook case, of what Psalm 2 was talking about when it says... The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. Here it is. This is them banding together against the Lord and his anointed. And so, of course, now David has to respond. Whether he would have or not, I don't know, but now he has to respond. But even then, he doesn't respond personally. Look at verse 7. On hearing this, David sent Joab out with the entire army of fighting men. We're not told why it is that David 
personally isn't going out with the army. But when you consider the way the rest of the narrative proceeds, I think we're right to wonder if David, wittingly or unwittingly, is still giving these guys a chance to make amends before it's too late. In any event, at first it looks like there's going to be this huge, very difficult two-front battle. As I read the description, you know how in awesome, like, scenes of movies where there's going to be a massive epic battle like Lord of the Rings and you get that sort of heaps cool rousing music playing as you see the armies kind of getting ready or like even you know like halo music you know you know what I'm talking about right yeah yeah try not to think about that as I read uh, the the description here about them preparing for the battle here we go verse 8 here we go here we go the Ammonite shh, don't think about that music the Ammonites came out and drew up battle formation at the entrance of their city gate, while the Aramaeans of Zobah and Rehob and the men of Tob and Maaka were by themselves in the open country. Joab saw that there were battle lines in front of him and behind him. So he selected some of the best troops in Israel and deployed them against the Aramaeans. He put the rest of the men under the command of Abishai, his brother, and deployed them against the Ammonites. Joab said, if the Aramaeans are too strong for me, then you are to come to my rescue." But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come to rescue you. Be strong. Let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. And so here we are at maximum intensity. And it really does feel like this fight is going to be a very close call. Joab, the very successful leader of military campaigns for David he's saying like I don't know if we're going to we get overwhelmed or you're going to get overwhelmed we, we've got to be ready for either outcome and so what happens now after this nail-biting build up to the massive showdown battle well here it is verse 13 then Joab and the troops with him advanced to fight the Arameans and they fled before him when the Ammonites realized the Arameans were fleeing they fled before Abishai and went inside the city so Joab returned from fighting, if you could call it that, the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. Oh, what a B-grade film that would have been. <laughs> Why such an anti-climax? We don't know. Maybe when they came out to the battle lines, they realised that David's armies exuded so much confidence in the fact that Yahweh, the God of Israel, was on their side and they'd been successful so long we don't know obviously we're not told but given that you and I as readers know what happens when people band together against the Lord and against his anointed given we know that that's always bad news perhaps we're meant to see this as yet another chance at repentance before it's too late See, we know that if David so desires, he could dash them to pieces like pottery, Psalm 2. We know that if David so desires, he can ask of the Lord and he will make those nations his inheritance again, Psalm 2. It's a bit like how it is with God's people today, by the way. Our king, Jesus, is not out with us at the moment. He's actually sitting enthroned in the, the real Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, while we, his people do battle with spiritual forces of evil, as we're told in Ephesians. And those forces constantly band together against the Lord and his anointed. 
As Jesus' messengers, we come out with the light of the gospel. But his enemies continue to retreat into the darkness because their deeds are evil. We hope and pray that those outside Jesus' kingdom will heed the warning before it's too late. We hope and pray they'll repent and recognise that no one can beat Jesus. All they can do is join his kingdom and take refuge in him. But the day is fast approaching when it will be too late, when Jesus himself will return, figuratively when Jesus himself will ride out into battle and conquer every enemy. And with the passage at hand, we actually get a shadow of that, especially in the last part, which we're about to look at. The enemies who had foolishly banded together against the Lord and against his Messiah persist in doing so, which means they end up facing the judgment of the king. So from verse 15, after the Aramaeans saw that they'd been routed by Israel, they got together and seriously considered whether or not this was actually a good idea. No. I mean, you'd desperately hope so, wouldn't you? But no. They regrouped. Hadadezer had Aramaeans brought from beyond the Euphrates River. And by the way, with that big map we had, the Euphrates River is even further north and further east than, than where the map was. And they went to Helam with Shobak, the commander of Hadadezer's army, leading them. When David was told of this, notice David's now coming out, it's personal. He gathered all Israel, crossed the Jordan and went to Helam. The Aramaeans formed their battle lines to meet David and fought against him, it's personal now, the king himself is coming out for the battle. That makes sense because whenever you pick a fight with God's people, in the end you're actually picking a fight with God's king. Uh, the apostle Paul knew that spectacularly well, didn't he? Remember Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus, killing Christians, persecuting them. Jesus shows up and says, yo Saul, why are you persecuting me? You take on my people, you, you're taking on me. And so despite all the epic build-up, of course, in the end, there could only ever be one obvious and absolutely dead certain outcome. Verse 18, but they fled before Israel and David killed 700 of their charities and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He also struck down Shobak, the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the kings who were vassals, that means sort of underlings, vassals of Hadadezer, saw that they had been routed by Israel, they made peace with the Israelites and became subject to them. Now, Hadadezer, just as an aside, was king over Beth Rehob, one of those four major nations up north uh, whose army had been hired by the Ammonites to go against David. Hadadezer himself had to have been a pretty good conqueror because he had lots of vassal kingdoms, other people that he'd conquered and, and, and sort of joined his nation. But here we're told that the rulers of those vassal kingdoms, probably in great disobedience to Hadadezer, made peace with Israel instead. They knew who the more powerful conqueror really was and they knew they'd be better off joining him rather than trying to beat him. 
And that meant, the effect of that was that the Ammonites lost all the allies they'd have needed, not only to do an offensive against Israel, but now just to defend themselves against Israel with whatever Israel might do next. And it's that detail that makes the very last line of this whole chapter one of the most tragic and terrifyingly ominous little phrases in the Bible. See, the last sentence of verse 19, it simply reads, so the Aramaeans were afraid to help the Ammonites anymore. When you understand this passage aright, when you see these words in context, you see it as a profoundly chilling sentence. You see, the feeling that that ought to evoke for the Ammonites would have been like being on, put on death row, knowing that at any time, very soon, the jailer's going to come and take you to the execution chamber. And there's absolutely no possibility of leniency, no defence lawyers, no nothing. You've burned all the bridges. You see, the Ammonites had willingly, high-handedly, spurned the kindness of God's king. They had opportunity to repent, but instead, they'd organised an even greater offensive Now that their plans have failed, they're left depleted and without anyone else to help them. They are sitting ducks before Israel. There is absolutely nothing now that can stand between them and the righteous wrath of God's king. What makes it so much worse is that they could have received his kindness. He offered it. Even after their terrible insult to David's men, they could have repented. Even after the first attack, they could have repented and sought forgiveness. But their ongoing steadfast refusal to accept the king's kindness means that they are now totally alone and at any moment now, David's going to strike them down. By the way... That's pretty much what happens in the very next verse. I know this is next week's passage, but just look at the very beginning of chapter 11. Here's how it starts, right? In the spring of the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. They barely even rate a mention. Just get rid of them. They're gone. That's it. Far more than the pain or the horror of the manner in which death comes to each and every person, the absolute worst way to die is to know that even though you had every opportunity to accept the kindness of God's king, that you stubbornly refused time and time again. And now, at the point where you realise your complete and utter stupidity, it's too late. When every earthly prop has given way, there remains only the fearful expectation of judgment. Those who persistently spurn the kindness of God's king will always, always come to a terrible end. Now, of course, I can't help but want to also sort of stress upon you that the converse of this is true. And that's because what we're seeing 
here is actually the second side of the coin. 2 Samuel 9, really with Mephibosheth, reinforces the, the truth that those who embrace the kindness of God's King will always have refuge in Him. But we're seeing the other side of that coin, 2 Samuel 9 and 2 Samuel 10, they're kind of like the two ways to live of the Old Testament, right? You've seen what happens if you embrace the kindness of the King and now this week we see what happens if you spurn His kindness. And by the way, if that's the case just with David here, well, how much more so it must be with the case of God's ultimate son, ultimate king, Jesus. Jesus has been raised from death to rule over an eternal kingdom. So how you respond to him has not only earthly but eternal consequence. Sadly, even though Jesus gave his life to spare people from the righteous wrath of the Holy God, the majority, we're told in the Bible, the majority of people will continue in some way or other to reject his kindness. In fact, to throw his kindness back in his face. If you're here tonight and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you might think that's a bit of a sort of a harsh explanation. You might think, no, I'm sort of neutral, I, you know not really an enemy of Jesus, I just don't know if I'm trusting. Yeah, that's a terrible deception. In the Scriptures, either you are with Jesus or you only ever always are against him. And given the heinousness of your sin, of the fact that you've lived your life in sort of blissful ignorance and frankly arrogant unawareness of God who gives you every breath that you're still taking... And that Jesus, in order to pay for that, had to give up such a lot, his, his whole life. And you sort of think, oh, I'll sit kind of blasé to Jesus, I may take him if I feel like it. Wow, that's slapping him in the face. You've got to repent before it's too late. If you don't yet know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, every day that you hold off coming to put your trust in him is another day closer to him riding out into that battlefield and it'll be too late. Every day is a day you reject his kindness and slap him in the face. Every day you disobey a direct command from God. God does not invite you to put your trust in him. He commands it, Acts chapter 17. He commands all people everywhere to repent. If you know this and you walk out of here tonight, you are disobeying God's command. Repent and put your faith in Jesus before it's too late. Of course, there are always more subtle ways of people slapping Jesus in the face, of people rejecting his kindness. I think one of the most insidious ways that people reject the kindness of Jesus is with religious systems. There are entire religious systems, even some that call themselves Christian, where the idea is that, yes, Jesus is kind, he gave his life to pay for my sin, and me of my own will and volition, making my own choice and doing my own good works to contribute, cooperates with Jesus. And, and it's Jesus and me together and what I put into that that gives me the salvation I need. You see, well, that's a dreadful slap in the face to Jesus. It's basically just another way of saying, God... What you did in giving your son was not good enough. I had to contribute something. It's just self-centeredness. There are whole systems of religion that are based on... By the way, one of the biggest temptations for God's people today in our world and culture is to fail to be singularity-ishness kind of people. 
We fail to be single-minded and undivided in our devotion to Jesus. It's so easy for us, given the way our culture thinks about materialism and sexuality, to be partially committed to serving Jesus and his eternal kingdom and also partially committed to serving the false gods of materialism and hedonism in this sinful and adulterous generation which is coming to naught. You guys have heard this time and time again. It never gets old for Christians though. Dear God, if there is some part of my heart where I value financial security more than my treasures in heaven, please cleanse me. Dear God, if there is some part of my heart and mind where what our culture and world says about human sexuality and sexual morality, just I'm buying into that more than I'm buying into your word. Please cut that out, Father. Please let me go with your word, not with my stupid fallen culture, which is coming to naught. For most of us, I, I know, I, I expect at least, most of us here know the great joy and liberation of having found refuge in Christ. And therefore, we need the constant reminder to make sure we don't side with the enemies of God. See, those vassal kings of Hadadezer, they changed their allegiance to being with God and God's people, and they weren't going to help the Ammonites anymore. One of the saddest things is for a lot of Christians is we're now with King Jesus. We've accepted his kindness, but we've got this horrible temptation to keep helping the enemies, to keep helping the people who Jesus is one day soon going to overthrow and destroy. I'll give you an example of it. This one um, pertains especially to, to those in Christian leadership. So I've got to put myself in the firing line here. You remember a couple of months back, there was that whole fiasco with that guy, I think Andrew Thornburn was his name, the, the AFL guy who was in the, the CEO for that Melbourne club for like a day. And then he got sacked because he went to a Bible-teaching evangelical church whose views, let's be honest, about sexuality, that's the only thing they cared about, were not consistent with the, whatever it is, the, the football club, and so he was asked to resign. A couple of days later, the senior minister of that church, a city on a hill, uh, Melbourne, was put on that morning show with that bald guy, what's his name, Koshi, something like that, and he just laid into him with the angry mob mentality of our current media, and... I want to make it clear before I say anything else that I stand with that church and I stand with that rector. Good on him for going there, right? He's a faithful follower of Jesus, right? Full marks. But I also got to say I was so frustrated because it's like the natural thinking of so many Christians is we want to be friends with the world. We want to win points with the world. We want to go softly, softly. We want to... Oh, our church is about Jesus and Jesus is all about love, blah, blah, blah. It's just a waste of time. It does nothing good for the gospel or the kingdom. And it just means that the angry mob mentality keep, you know, sort of putting pressure on the people of God. It's siding with the enemy. What he should have done, he said something like, excuse me, yeah, I'm completely unashamed about the Bible's view on human sexuality, that marriage is between a man and a woman, and that that is actually so thoroughly uncontroversial for any Christian, if they're a Bible believer, and frankly, the majority of human history for the majority of time. And I'd love to see you get an imam or a rabbi on your show and speak to him the same way that you're speaking to me. That would have been so much more sensible. And so much, frankly, I think more honouring to Jesus because those, the haters are going to hate anyway, aren't they? 
But those who don't know will see it and go, actually, this guy is right. He, he's allowed to believe the things he believes. And there's something actually, even in the tiny vestiges of our culture that, that know what honour and respect is, might even honour and respect someone for standing up for what they believe. Stop siding with the enemy. You don't have to win the world's favour. This world is passing away. Anyone who loves the world and the things of this world, the love of the Father is not in them. For goodness sake, be unashamed of Jesus and his words because when he comes back, he's going to be unashamed of those who are unashamed of him. Let me conclude in prayer and uh, it's up to Fletcher if we've got question times or not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you so much for our risen King and Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that the day is coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that there is no refuge from him, but there is, of course, tremendous refuge in him. We thank you for the kindness of King David that gives a pale, shallow, uh, pale and shallow reflection of the kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his very life that we might be forgiven and purified from sin might live for you and with you for all eternity heavenly father where we're tempted to join in with the enemies of jesus please correct us and father for anyone here who as yet is not accepting of the kindness of jesus who still in their heart of hearts spurns it please work powerfully by your spirit to convict them of the truth bring them to repentance and faith before it's too late we ask these things in jesus name Amen.